Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect, just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for tuning in to the Once Upon a Podcast Network. I really hope that you've been enjoying all nine shows now, especially the newest one that has just launched this past Sunday, Audio Drama Sunday Theater. And from there, you get to hear in its entirety, Excelsior, the audio journey. So I am so excited for that show. I'm so excited for all the shows in this network to see what everyone has in store for all of you. And about 20 years ago, I got to learn what a certain gentleman had in store for me and my friend Charlie Kessler because Charlie came over to me one Sunday night since he lived right next door and said, there's a show that's starting up on HBO called Carnival. And we sat down and I had no idea what to expect. I didn't see any of the any of the commercials for it. I didn't see any sort of like build up for it. It was just kind of throwing me right into the deep end. And boy, did I want to swim as soon as I saw that first episode, because I was immediately hooked. One of the things that really grabs my attention is a story with a really good mythology. And this one has that in every form. And I was so taken by everyone involved. I was so taken by the characters. I was taken by the actors. I was taken by the setting. Everything about it just felt like this was a story that I could really get into. And it's something that that I always found to be very, very special, something that does not come around very often. And when it does come around, you got to cherish it. And when you have milestone moments such as the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Carnival, you got to celebrate it. And that's why we're here today. We are here with the creator himself, the man responsible for all of this goodwill for all this time, Mr. Daniel Knopf. Daniel, how are you, sir? Ah, I'm good. How about you? I am, I am doing great. I am so excited to have you here and I'm so excited to be, to have a chance to really talk about this show because it really is, it really was something special and, and it always will be for me. It's something that, that I really grabbed onto. It was something I was, gra- I was happy to have grabbed onto from the beginning and, wow. And uh, and even uh, a couple of years later at a Chiller Theater convention, I got to meet both Tim Decay and Adrian Barbeau, and uh-huh. I got to tell them about how much I how much I enjoyed it. I even got to do a Donald Pleasance impression for Adrian. So uh-huh. it was overall a very very entertaining and a really successful successful day there. So it was a lot of fun. Ah, well, I'm I'm, I'm glad to have had you. I oh, wish you I, had, I wish we'd had more of you. I, yeah, it it was one of those things where it was just like, it, like when, when it ended the way it did, it was just like, it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, I, w- I would love to have more, but I love the ambiguous ending that that one, that it gave the, the second season finale. I thought that was, if, if they were, go- if it was going to end, it was just like, oh, I would, I would love to see what happens next. But at the same time, it's just like, okay, like this, this is, 
this kind of works for this kind of show. Well, yeah, you did, you yeah. did see, you did see the end mm-hmm. of, I mean, it was conceived as a trilogy. So yeah. the first book takes place in 19, 1934 to 35. The second book starts from 1939 to 40. And the fourth book takes place from 1944 to 45. So wow. you, you, you did see the, the first book in the trilogy, but I had, two more books sort of laid out in my head. Wow. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to do them. Yeah. Uh, it was for, I mean, there was a variety of reasons. I mean, one is there was a very high bar set for the show mm-hmm. by HBO. They expected Sopranos numbers. So I, I knew we were kind of doomed from the outset because genre shows not going to do as well as a mainstream drama. I knew oh, that we were, yeah. we were asking a lot of the audience in, in the, in, in the way where that story was unfolding, which was unlike any story that preceded it on television. And now yeah. you got back then, you're talking about 2001, 2003, I don't know. Yeah. 20, 20 years, 20 yeah, years ago. Yeah. We had a, we had a television landscape that was full of lawyers, cops and doctors. And, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, you didn't have a lot of bearded ladies on TV and, and true and, and little people and, 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 messiahs and avatars and and we had to kind of tease out our the the there was about i'm a big believer in the iceberg theory of of storytelling is that 70 percent of it you never see Mm -hmm. and 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 i think i was a i came into carnival from the real world and i was a health insurance broker Mm -hmm. and i somehow the show got purchased by HBO. I'd never run a show before. Right. Um, I, I was brand new. And, and, and so that was a challenge from, from, but the fact that they, you know, that they spent so, they spent a lot of money on the show for the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, it had its audience. We did really well in the first episode. It scored like record viewings i think a lot of people at the end of it probably went huh like wait a minute this is magic well there was, there was that there was that amazing shot of brother justin like walking walking in the middle of that rainstorm as it was coming down like there was um, well, i don't know is yeah. that was that episode one i know yeah that yeah that was episode one i remember like that was that was one of like the last shots or so like of it and it was just oh like, was that the, the the red rain and yeah you know, the, the yeah shins? yeah that mm-hmm. was pretty, pretty amazing pretty amazing yeah. sequence. And uh, so there was a lot of weirdness going on. And it's like, well, this, this ain't the Sopranos. This ain't Sex no. in the City. <laughs> I'm out, you know? And so mm-hmm. the ratings went down. We had to kind of earn them back up. They were, they slowly came up over the first season. The second season, we saw a very slow increase in numbers of, of viewers, but alas, not enough to save the show. And, uh, and so there, there it goes. Yeah. Very, very frustrating. From the from the standpoint of the fans and and from my the standpoint of me, I, I would have liked to have completed it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, something like yeah, that. You had like this grand. It. It's a great. It's a grand like epic story. So like like you said, it was asking a lot of of an audience that didn't expect it. But man, like the ones that I I can say the ones that re- were dialed into it were really dialed into it. And oh yeah, our fans so. are. St- I mean, we're talking about it today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the fan base climbed after we went off the air. It kept going up. I mean, the fa- the Facebook groups were more and more populated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny with HP. I mean, I, I, I have to, I mean, who else would have taken a chance on a show like this? And, and True. I'm forever grateful they did. I mean, it launched my career, but at the same time, the, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it was, we were, we were doing a, a, a lot of, a lot of things that weren't necessarily new as far as narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were more novelistic devices, but they were new to, to film. Right. Because we had the real estate to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so with with that in mind, I'm really curious to see like how everything really kind of got started with it, because you have you mentioned just very briefly that it that it came from it came from an idea that, that you had before you even broke into this into this industry. So one of the things that I love to talk about on the show is what I like to call the lightning bolt moment. And that's that moment in time when you either experience something or see something, hear something, and, and it just kind of makes you pull in that direction and say, ah, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of life I want to lead. So yeah. what was it about that? What was it about Carnival itself that really kind of, that grabbed your attention? Just said like, this is a story that has to be told. Oh, well, I, I, this wasn't. This wasn't a lightning bolt kind of thing. There's a lot of moving parts on the show and Mm -hmm. there's, there were a lot of things that I had to consider creatively and make creative decisions on. And, 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 but the, I'd say the closest thing to a lightning bolt moment during its gestation Mm -hmm. was uh, I was out for a a Sunday walk and I was, I was, there was a park near my house that they used to have. They used to set up the big carnival every year and it was like six in the morning and I was out and, and I saw these people in sleeping bags underneath the, the trucks yeah. and they were all the people who, who, who worked the carnival. And I was thinking, this is like in this day and age, you know, this would have been the, this would have been the nine, the early nineties in this day and age. This is like almost impossibly romantic is the idea that, these guys don't clock in. They live with yeah. this thing. They, and, and when they're done for the day, they just sleep under the truck and they wake up in the morning and they all have coffee. And then when people start showing up, they turn on the rides. And, and I, I thought, so I want to do something about these people. Cause it's a, it was a very few things had done. Uh, Robbie Robertson had done Carney and, and Lon Chaney Jr. had done Blood Alley. I mean, there'd be a few treatments of carnival life. And of course, Todd Browning's freaks, but yeah. there, there were a few treatments of carnival life in, 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 in film. And, mm-hmm. and I thought this is a nice untilled patch of ground. Nobody's really done anything. And I, I thought of it immediately in terms of being an allegory. The second component really was just had taken root much earlier in my, my love for, for epic fantasy storytelling, my favorite. Mm-hmm books of all time was Lord of the Rings. And I always thought, God, what a, what a thing to do. Big yeah. story on a big canvas. And I want to do a, a story about good versus evil. So that was in the hopper. And then the final thing was sort of, okay, well, I know I want to do this story. I know I want to use the carnival as protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. And so when do I set it? I first thought of it as, okay, we could do post-apocalyptic thing. And I thought, eh, that's been so done. I mean, I've seen it, done it. Yeah. And I realized our country versus every other country in Europe and Asia and Africa, we're young. 
we don't have we don't have a huge well of mythology and 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 or mythologized story and so the only period that i'd seen that we'd mythologized was the wild west and, mm, yeah. and i thought well maybe it's time to take a crack at mythologizing a different era and i immediately was drawn to the time between world war 2 and world war 1 and world war 2 mm. and and i love the the sort of ambiguity and 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 color of that period it was a period of great poverty and and almost apocalyptic natural disasters and uh, and you had Hitler rising in Germany and, and you had the KKK marching down Main Street mm-hmm. and Nazi rallies at Madison Square Gardens and so it's like okay well we could have probably gone either way yeah and until we declared war against them, Hitler had this great fascination and love for America. Mm-hmm. And I just think, thank God all the good Germans had already moved to America before. <laughs> <laughs> all the Germans that were worth a shit moved to America before <laughs> World War II because we yeah. beat, the, beat the snot out of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he just had the dregs left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, he uh, genius move. Okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's do a pogrom against Jews, which basically encompass our entire intellectual and scientific elite. That's right. a great move. And so... Basically, he just forced them out of the country into 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 the welcome arms of the of our enemy, mm-hmm. um, and and so there was also the the event at, at White Sands, which struck me as that was a line of demarcation in in world human well human history, mm-hmm. and so the so I, I thought okay this is the story I'm going to do the story of the end of magic. That mm. with the explosion of the first atom bomb at Trinity, that was when God sort of tossed us the car keys and said, you're on your own. Um, mm. And that's when magic went away and yeah. that science came to the fore. And, and that was a good thing. And maybe, maybe a, 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 a not necessarily a bad thing, but certainly a sad thing. So, mm. so those were all the, the elements, but. Yeah, I think the one that really snapped my eyes open was that walk at the park. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of seeing like everything. Yeah. That's, that really is just like a, a really, a really amazing setting and just kind of like the way that, the way that it unfolded in that, that first episode, really getting to meet like the different characters and everything. So, so you sat down and you started. So you started. You I started like this screenplay. All these different I thought, characters. Yeah. Started. I thought, I thought it was a screenplay. So I started trying to to write this thing as a screenplay in the first mm-hmm. draft that I, that I completed, I was something like 190 pages. And oh wow, I was going, this isn't a, this is too big for a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I did the best I could to sort of smash it down. And then I, I kind of gave up and put it away. And I mean, at that point, in my, my, my creative life, what I was doing was I was just, I was attending, classes and going to seminars and workshops and so forth and just really focusing on my craft. I wasn't in, really wasn't trying to sell anything. Yeah. And Carnival was one of those ones where it's like, wow, I bit off more than I could chew with that one. And mm-hmm. so I threw it into the, threw it into the bottom drawer and I'd haul it out every once in a while and 
feed it some red meat and, and <laughs> put it back down there. And then one day I went to a writer's guild retreat and I met some TV writers and, and I thought maybe, maybe this is a TV show. Maybe I need, mm. and so I wrote a pilot and then I thought, what am I thinking about? I'm in my, I'm in my early forties and a break into TV. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like for kids. Yeah. And so that went back into the drawer and then I put it up on the internet with a bunch of other things that I had. And I had a website called Unmovies, which is now just Knopf TV. And it had all the first acts of everything I'd written. And a guy named Robert Keobod stumbled across it. And he worked for another guy named Scott Winant, who was, who was an Emmy winning TV director showrunner. And, and he said, well, what's the rest of it? So I went in there and I visited with him and we talked about it and we went on to sell it and to HBO. And, wow. and, and so, so I was a fan. Yeah, I was a fan before. I mean, I, I'd still, I'm still very well connected with being a consumer of TV. And I understand mm-hmm. why people watch TV. And that's something that I think most of the executives I deal with have complete, they have no idea. They, they've just, mm-hmm. they probably didn't watch much TV and, and, and they, they just graduated from their Ivy League colleges. And, yeah, and they don't understand the relationship people have with their television sets, and it is a, it's it's a relationship. It's not yeah. like we don't have a relationship with movie screens. That's a one night stand, but we have a long term relationship with these shows, and and so that's I think that's kind of what I kind of bring to the party when I create shows. That's a great way to look at it. Just, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people really kind of take those moments, like sitting in the movie theater and everything. And, and it really is just like, it's a very brief experience, but once it's done, it's really, when it's done right, it's truly unforgettable. But, yeah. but you gotta, it's, it's a rarity when, when those, when everything really kind of comes together. Yeah. A lot has to come together. Like you have to have people not, not, being distracting. You have to have a lot of people that are dialed into what's going on. You have to have something on the screen that's going to cause those kinds of reactions. And then well, it's like you, you can yeah. go into the kitchen mm-hmm. and cook this amazing stew with, and everybody sits down and says, Oh my gosh, that was transformational. That was yeah. like the best stew I've ever had. And then you can sit, go and, and make the same stew with the same ingredients. And everybody goes, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's as part of it is the zeitgeist. It's what's going on out in the world and what people are, are, are sort of jonesing for as a way of what kind of stories they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And others, other parts of it, I think is having a deep respect for the, for, for the audience mm-hmm. and saying on the part of the filmmakers is like, yeah. first of all, I'm not smarter than they are. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to talk down to them. I'm going to, I'm going to not bore them. I'm mm-hmm. going to entertain them. I'm going to try to move them and, 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 and hopefully everything will sort of come together and it'll, it'll, it'll be a, an experience that they don't regret having, having had. Yeah. And, and the idea of, of putting the, part of at least like a segment of your script up on your website that's that's bold like that that's that's very bold like a lot of people would be just like oh someone could immediately go ahead and snatch that and you wouldn't even know so, ah, i find that people who yeah. the, the the people who are really obsessed over oh somebody's gonna rip my stuff off mm-hmm. it's inversely proportional to their talent 
I'm, it's like, it's like, okay, go ahead and rip me off. I have a paper trail. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mm-hmm. can go to court. I can show earlier drafts. It's, nobody invents this stuff. So that's a great way to look at it. And that's something that yeah. I think a lot of people really don't, don't, don't grasp with because as long as you can back it up, then go for it. It's, it's, ideas are a dime a dozen. I mean, who yeah. cares? So you can throw, I have, I have, I have, I have 25 ideas before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's all in the execution. And you called it Unmovies? That was what it was originally called? My company is called Unmovies. Nice. Very so nice. It's like stuff that isn't. Yeah. I, I, well, the stuff that isn't is, to me, I've got a show called, I've got, I've got a, a website, Noff.tv. Yeah. And I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, I've got a show decks, Bibles, full drafts of, of pilots that never got shot. And, wow. and I think many of them are like make Carnival look like uh, Beverly Hillbillies or something. I, it's, and that's, and that's really kind of fascinating because like whenever, one of the things that I've noticed on like when it comes to, when it comes to things that have, that have come out and then if they didn't do well or if there's word of like a director's cut or something that was, that is kind of just like stewing in the background, that just because it's not in front of us, that's what makes like everyone really want to see something happen. It's kind of like yeah. the, it's kind of like the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. Yeah. Like that, that, if that came out, then it would have come out. It would have, it, it would have done what it needed to do or probably would not have whatever. Like, and, but then people would, there wouldn't have be like the appetite that grew because of it, because it was taken yeah. away from them. Then all of a sudden it just like grabs, grabs that sort of attention. So sometimes, yeah. Yeah. But like the fact that, that you have like all this, this whole other library of material, that's gonna, that's going to grab more people's attention because it's like, oh wait, why did they pass on that? If I saw, if I saw this, then they had to have, have, have taken that. And then all of a sudden that just kind of like, it feeds that, that need for yeah, people I to mean, the trolls, see that sort of material. The, the trolls at the bridge have a list and there's boxes and sometimes they get you're, you're just flying blind mostly and you go and you pitch and hopefully they check off a few boxes. And if they check off a few boxes, a more, a few more boxes, they say, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. So it's, it's really kind of arbitrary where, and I mean, look, I could make it, it look, if I want to make something like Carnival, I need millions of dollars. And yeah. And the studios at this point are just banks, but mm-hmm. the difference is like, let's say you, you go, okay, I'm going to build a house. Yeah. Hey, you give them the, you give them the, the, the blueprints and you say, here's the neighborhood I'm building it in. Here's the values of the other properties in the neighborhood I'm building in. Can I have a loan or not? And the bank decides, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you can have a loan. Go ahead and build your house. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like movies, studios or banks that are going, okay, well, what colors the, the wallpaper in the bathroom? And, and whether we decide to say yes or not is going to depend on whether you pick the right cur- curtains for your kitchen. Or not. Yeah. It's just, it's this endless knights who say knee shrubbery <laughs> for something that's going to please these people. That is, that is the best analogy for the studios that I think I've ever heard. It really <laughs> is the knights who say knee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, the notes you get, some of the notes are really good. I'm not, I'm not slamming them. I've gotten great notes from studios where I'm kicking myself in the butt all the way home going, yeah, why didn't I come up with that? Yeah. But I would have figured it out sooner or later. 
But I mean, I, I would have probably thought, oh, yeah, I need to do this. I mean, things like that. But there, you also get these things that are just absurd. Mm-hmm. Lately, okay, well, we have we have this, these diversity boxes to check off, and and so it's like I had I had I've had I, I had a, a moment of absurdity on my on on one of my shows, which I really don't want to go into because it's a political sort of. I don't know. Well, I will. I mean, I had a character that was in a wheelchair. Yeah. And it's about, it was a show about kids getting shot in space. And uh, well, that the was the Ron Howard one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the studio people were, were going, okay, we have to cast a person who's disabled. Now, a little background. My dad was disabled. My dad, my dad had post polio. We was in a wheelchair from the time I was two. I'm mm. very, very much in touch with disability. I lived it. Yeah. It, it was, it was, a, it was a, one of the most important things in my life growing up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I go, well, it's a problem here because she's only in the wheelchair in the first episode. Once she gets into like this reduced gravity situation, she's able to walk. And what I wanted to explore with that character was she's the one kid that's on the ship that mm-hmm. if they get back to earth, it's a, a net negative for her. She's mm. back with the chair. Yeah. And explore the idea of somebody who's disabled, who's accustomed to having things done for them, suddenly being told, well, do it yourself. Mm. What do you want me to do that for? Yeah. And I knew like, like my father, when he was, when he was, when he was, when he was struck down, it was a, a devastating blow for my family, but he recovered. Okay. He, yeah. he, he made, he made changes and he continued working and did very well. Mm-hmm. Now, had he gone off to Lords and got in the water and came home like walking, fully recovered, it would have been just as traumatic as the disability in its own way. Mm. It would have it, it would have been a, a 180 degree change in the dynamic of how things were done around the house. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to sort of explore that. And so, but they said no, the person has to be disabled. I said, well, she's not. She's right. going to be walk. Oh, well, maybe we could find somebody who's kind of disabled and, mm. and, or it'd be like, yeah, and, and we're catering know. too much. And, yeah. and, and it's like, it's like, guys, it's okay that let's go to the disabled community and let me sit down with them and talk to them. I think they'll be on board for this. I don't think anybody's going to be offended by it if we right. got a fully able actor in this role because it mm-hmm. requires that. And no, they, they, they didn't want to do this. So I just, I cut the character. I, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, I'm, I'm just not going to deal with this foolishness anymore. And I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. I think yeah. it would have been really interesting for the audience to see another side to the human condition that they probably have never seen before. Mm-hmm. And a person struggling with problems that they, they haven't seen people struggle with those particular problems. Yeah. And, and so it's crazy shit like that that you, that turns your, brain inside out this business yeah it's it's one of those things where just like once it's 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 a it's a very it's a it's a slippery slope where you can you can see the good intentions behind it but then at when it starts to cut into the whole meaning of the character then yeah yeah, i totally understand the the impulse to just say like all right we'll 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 take that part nothing's nothing is more treacly and 
condescending than good intentions in my book. I mean, look, I made this show Carnival. When I remember we did the Lobster Girl, and mm-hmm. there's a people. There's a I forget what the name of the condition is, but there's people who have that condition, mm-hmm. and one of them is is this young lady who ended up playing the role, and it's the the deformed hands that look like claws. Yeah, and we were having trouble getting her. And mm. she worked at, at a pet store and her boss wouldn't give her the time off to do the show. It was like, Whoa. just throw money at her boss. And, <laughs> and, and so I remember the, the, the special effects guy, special makeup effects going around and handing out these pictures of, of, of a prosthetic that he was going to create. And I mean, I was collecting them. I was going, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're getting a real lobster girl. And I'm sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm putting my foot down on that one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's times where, yeah, you don't want to, if, if, if you can, you don't want to, you, you want to keep it real. And yeah. I am, especially the, with casting, casting sort of a sidelined or, or fringe people in fringe roles. Yeah. But if you take the whole thing, it's like, oh, I'm writing a story about a, a, a serial killer. Well, I guess we're going to have to cast a serial killer. I mean, <laughs> come on. Right. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely understand the, the everything with that. Like that's, it really is. We're doing a story about a multiple personality and it's like, well, I hope one of them is a good actor. Yeah. Yeah. So as, so, so you get, so it winds up getting, it finds its way over to HBO and what was, what was their initial reaction? Like when they, when they got to really get to know like the, the characters and everything were they really were they? Oh God! Well, uh, what I did is my Scott Wyneth said we mm-hmm. got to do a Bible. Yeah. So he, I said, "What's what's a Bible?" And he told me. And so I started doing a Bible. So okay, character character synopses, story mm-hmm. synopses, and I started getting really bored with it. I found it dry and unreadable, and I just was. And I, if I'm bored, you know, they're going to be bored. Mm-hmm. So I, I just threw everything out and I created this Bible that was like, okay, I'm taking the, the role of a college professor who heard about this and it was a very real thing. And I'm looking into the veracity of this carnival that was working the Midwest in the, in the, in, during the depression. And I had fake interviews in it. I had fake newspaper articles and I had fake sports articles about Jonesy playing baseball and I, it was full of like fake documentary stuff. That's so cool. And, uh, and so when we finally met with HBO, it was Carolyn Strauss, who, by the way, is my patron yeah. saint. She was, she's the one who saw this thing through all the way and fought for the show bravely. And, and uh, we sat down and they said, well, we had no idea that this was real. <laughs> Wow. Mission accomplished. Nice. No, it's nice. not real. I made all that yep. shit up. There's those religious, <laughs> those religious tracks are all fake. There's no brother Justin. So, yeah. Oh, that's terrific. And so they, they were, they were a little nervous and, and they did it. And for, for reasons unknown, Scott, Scott was sort of removed as a, a, a executive producer, but he came back later as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of on my own. So I executive produced it and I, I mean, I produced it and I, I wrote it, the pilot, mm-hmm. uh, all by my lonesome. And it was really terrifying, this huge cast and, and, and crew and, and sets and, and all that stuff. And a very, very, very strong director in Rodrigo Garcia. Um, mm-hmm. 
a lot of a lot of big egos spinning around me, and I was just this guy was selling insurance you know, wow. a year ago, and but <laughs> we got it done at like the last possible minute. HBO ended up pulling the trigger on the series. And it was like almost a year between when we turned in the last, the, the, the final cut and HBO saying, okay, we're going to do this. And in that time, I got a job on a, a, a weird little show called Wolf Lake. So mm. I got some experience writing in a room, which I'd never had. And yeah. then they pulled the trigger and then they, they, they hired a bunch of really, uh, really amazing writers. And we, uh, we just wrote the shit out of it. So yeah. Yeah. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. And so, so take me over to the moment when you're on, you're on the set and you got to see this carnival, like right before your eyes, like your, your, that vision that you've had for a while. You had the, you had the different elements and everything, but then all of a sudden that they came together from the website to the deal with HBO to sitting down and, and working on the pilot to, creating this amazing like ancillary materials that, that really just like yeah. it feels like you were it, it's some of the best world building that I've that I've ever heard. Well, like, I had a really clear yeah. and deep vision for the show and I knew what I wanted. Yeah. It's the way as far as the way it looked and as far as the way the characters were and I was involved in casting and doing all those things. I actually it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Here's, here's three three Ferris wheels that are up for sale, and we need to buy one. It's like, well, how much is this one? Oh, that's twenty three thousand dollars. Okay, well, let's buy that one. It's like it was like <laughs> I'm, I'm buying a Ferris wheel. I, yeah, I was selling group health insurance. Now I'm buying Ferris. But see, I, I was running my own business, so this running right. a show is basically running like running a mid sized business, and and so it was it was. It was a it was a whirlwind, and there was no real time to sit back and say, "Oh wow!" I mean, uh, to savor or the moment or celebrate moments. I, I was just hanging on by my fingernails mm-hmm. uh, because there were a million people that wanted to to to, to get me off the show because I just have an experience. And, yeah, but they couldn't find anybody who could do it. That was so weird. It was such a weird show. That was like, okay, he, this is the only guy. We're stuck with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was that. But I think the one moment that really I, I was kind of like, <gasps> was we had set up the carnival on this lot that was above the, uh, above the five freeway. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could see it from the freeway. You could see the Ferris wheel, the tent and so forth. And I remember driving on the freeway and looking up there and going, Oh, wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> like, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, that like, was it's, it's like it was almost like plucked from your mind and all, all of a sudden, like, there it is. And you're like moving toward it. Like, that's, yeah, that's I, I know that, another moment like that was after we shot our first season, they, the HBO bought the side of a building and it had this massive piece of just gorgeous art up there and, and the, the, the ad on Sunset Boulevard and, oh, and nice. seeing that and going, wow, that I really, I, <laughs> I remember funny. when I was a kid, I remember standing in the side in my front yard and I was bored and it's summertime and my parents had these landscape sort of smooth rocks. Yeah. And I just started chucking them at cars and I realized if I lead the car, I'll probably, cause I, 
it's always gone by by the time the rock hits the other side of the street. Yeah. It's always gone by when it hits Mr. Stolmeyer's Ivy. And so <laughs> I, I, I listened and then I led the car and it was like a sizable stone. I chucked the stone and it just hits the, the passenger side door on this car. And mm. the guy stops and he's in a business suit. He's coming home from work and he, she's, he storms up to me. Oh no. He, look, I'm like, I'm like eight and he storms yeah. up to me and he says, what were you thinking about? And I was like, I, I don't know. That's, mm-hmm. that's carnival. It was like, wow. <laughs> I threw the rock <laughs> and I hit the car. Well, what do I do now? You know? Right. Jeez. That's, that's fabulous. <laughs> so what, what was your experience kind of like seeing that cast? Cause there, the, it the was cast a real was tremendous. brilliant. And yeah. more than any other, you asked what, what's it like when it comes out of your head? And this show, more than any other show, shot for shot. And it's not because I was sitting there telling everybody what to do. Right. It's because I hired people who understood what I wanted to do. And they all want to make it even better than that. And so oh, nice. by the time we would shoot things, by the time I would see dailies, I'd go, this is exactly the way I had imagined it. Oh. Or I would say, oh, this is way better than I had imagined it. Mm-hmm. And so that experience, there was a strange deja vu. I would even see that in Video Village when we were just covering a shot. I'd be going, oh, yeah, that's it was in my head. Now it's out of my head. So, yeah. That's yeah, it was, it was an amazing, it was, an, I mean, the cast was, the cast was really brilliant. Yeah, just really, I mean, from, from one end to the other, like everyone was just superb. Like it was, and everyone was so, you know, you can tell just like what you said that they wanted to see this vision through. Everybody on the show, uh, cast and crew. Yeah. Knew we were doing something very special and, mm-hmm. and they brought their best because they yeah. knew the, they kind of, I think, I've been on other shows since, and people are, when you're down and you're setting up a shot, everybody's on the camera lining up their next gig. Their, mm-hmm. their thoughts aren't on the show. It's just, okay, on Carmel, it wasn't that way. I mean, yeah. when, when new scripts would get distributed, it would be like, I'd walk, I would take a walk around the lot, and yeah. I would see people reading these scripts, they'd be absolutely engrossed. They wouldn't have their highlighters out just to mark the shit they had to do. They'd be reading it. And yeah. um, everybody felt that they, they, they needed to, uh, this was their opportunity to make, to be part of something that was really going to be great. And I think mm-hmm. they were. Yeah. Know? They, de- they definitely were like, it really yeah. was like, it really was something. Yeah. So it was a real, special. it was a real family on that show. So, yeah. I mean, it's, so- on, on the casting, there's only one misstep, and, and that was I, uh, Apollonia, the Sophie's mother. Mm-hmm. So they got it, and I said, oh, bet, she's catatonic. We'll just get an extra and put her in the bed. I said, that's not going to work. You've mm-hmm. got to get a really fine actor to do this. This yeah. is a really huge challenge for an actor, and she's got to be able to live that whole character in just the real estate around her eyes for the most part. That's all she's got. Mm, wow. And, and no, 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 we're going to do this. And in the pilot, they, they brought in this person and this woman and she laid down and it was like on camera, she read like a mannequin. It was like, there was a mannequin mm. in the bed and, and I'm going, see, mm. <laughs> there's shit going on here. Yeah. And so then we brought in Diane and she was brilliant. And, and yeah. So the cast was, Terrific. And, and, and it was, it was uh, Carolyn Strauss was the person who, who really brought Nick 
up to us in a big way. Mm-hmm. So we, we got to get this guy. Yeah. And he was just, he was just. He was electrifying. He was astonishing. He was astonishing. And he had the best instincts of anybody I've ever seen. Ever. By, I've never seen it since. He, it was like working with James Dean in his prime. Yeah. 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 I can see that. I can definitely see that. He would, he has that sort of, that definitely that sort of James Dean esque quality to it. Yeah. None of it was mannered. None of it was thought out. It was, it was, he just. You can't teach it. It's, no. it, it's, it's instinct. And yeah, it was, yeah. and it worked so wonderfully well for that character. Yeah. Yeah. For, nobody, for nobody had to direct Nick. Yeah. He yeah. didn't have to direct Nick. Yeah. And, 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 and Toby Huss was, Toby Huss was a kick in, in the ass. And, and Adrian, of course, is just this, is this masterful stage trained actress. And, and, we just had a, a really, really I'm Clancy, of course. And we just Clancy, had this yeah. great cast. Yeah. So, so one thing I'm I'm curious about, like with when it came to when it came from from season one to season two, was there like a mandate to basically just kind of move the two stories together? In a, well, in a uh, case, or? no, no. We I had that on deck from the beginning. I I just I got away with it. Say, look, the big season two moment. Is going to be when Sophie shows up at Brother Justin's house. Those two mm-hmm. worlds are going to be like two. If it's a Venn diagram, it's just going to be these two circles, and eventually they're going to. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the end of season one, and then we'll be telling the stories and they're more and they'll be merging more and more. Yeah. And so that was all on deck. I, I had that plan, and there was no mandate. They didn't pressure me or say, "Can't we?" That's good to hear. No, they're very smart over there. I mean, Carolyn yeah. was. Very smart executive. And she saw what I was trying to do. And yeah. it's just a novelistic technique. It's been done a million times before. Stephen King does it in half the novels he writes, I think. True. And he'll have three or four, three or four narratives going where the characters don't meet until page. Yeah, like the stand. 700. You know, the the yeah. stand has like all these different nar- yeah. narratives happening. And yeah. it's, and it's only like when half the book is over, that's when they start to. They exactly. start to come together. And so, when that yeah. moment happens, it's just, it's magic. Deep. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think I, 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 what I did get was this, the show's too expensive. We need to lose some of the cast. And oh. so there was a very painful choice made. It was like, okay, who's it going to be? Well, we're going to broom, we're going to broom the alligator man. Mm. And he was a very good actor. And, and we're going to broom the, the, the Siamese twins. Mm. And uh, I thought, okay, I could do without the alligator, the lizard man and Siamese twins. But then they said, we got to lose loads. And I was like, oh no, I've got big plans for loads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we had to trim back on the cast because they were very concerned about keeping costs down. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. It's yeah, at the end of the day, it is a business. And so, yeah, which sucks. But at the same time, like it's, it's when, when, it, when it's done right, it's a magical business and this, yeah. Really I mean, I, 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 yeah, there were things, it was weird. The first season we do these company moves, like every, every episode of carnival would be to move the carnival to a different location. And I was, I was fighting against that. It's going, you guys, when they did wagon train, mm-hmm. they didn't move the wagon train. It was always in the same spot. They just moved a couple fake trees around or something. They were shot <laughs> or put the wagon, set the wagons up differently. They move the wagons around maybe. And say, yeah. Oh yeah. We're outside. We're, we're outside tombstone now. <laughs> the, 
we don't have to move every time. We can just set it up in one place and 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 shoot half a dozen before that that we burn that location. Yeah. And we can we can throw in some digital elements. We can just put the components of the set, which is pretty in a different place, and move those around. And it wasn't until the second season they finally listened to me because they wanted to save some money. Yeah. Because company moves are expensive. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the moment that I was saying that I, that I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the episode, when, when, when Justin says, there you are during the season two finale, my friend and I, we were up on our, off of our seat. And we just like just stayed standing the entire time. And like, you had us, you had us like that. There's no getting around it. It was just like, it was like you basically just kind of willed us up off of, (laughs) off of our seats and everything. And that scene where he he tears his face off and underneath is just like crazy. Oh my God. Like it was, it was so magical. And really it's, it's that, it's that moment of, those two worlds colliding in such a way that it just feels so earned because mm-hmm. of everything that happened before. So like it, yeah. it really is something magical. Well, that's what I like to do with everything I do. Yeah. Like I said, it's that I remember when I was, I was an X-Files fan. I'm sure mm-hmm. you were too. I was hugely into, it. I was hugely into it before anybody was even watching it. Cause I got really I, me and my son from the first moment it was on, I said, we're going to watch a show. So we started yeah. watching. We were just like grabbing fans and after about three years, we went, oh, there's really no there there. They really haven't thought this out, and except in very vague ways. Yeah. And I sensed that, and I felt really cheated as a fan. And so when I created Carnival, there was a there there. And most, yeah. I would, well, the big argument I'd have with the studio, they say, well, have them do this. And I'd say, no, we can't have them do this because this is, and I'd explain like, Okay, here, there's this, 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 and this that, that you aren't seeing, that yeah. you may never see. And they go, well, why don't we dramatize that? Is it because it doesn't need to be dramatized? It's just exposition at that point. If it's, yeah. I'll dramatize it if it, if it, if it informs the story, but, and I'll have it there yeah. for when it informs the story. But otherwise, it's just the, the part of the 70% that's underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, yeah, like speaking of X-Files, like, yeah, there would be, there would be a mix of one-off episodes where they'd be dealing with like some sort of creature of the week, but then there'd be other ones that are known as like the mythology episodes. Yeah. And that's like, there's just like, Oh, I guess we have to actually kind of keep on building upon what we've already started at the very beginning here. So there was a, there was this really interesting dichotomy between the two of them, which I, I would definitely I definitely get like what it is that they were doing, but yeah, a lot of shows. So supernatural did a lot of that too. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like shows like that that have like this bigger canvas to work with and everything. There's that, but like there's this very, very simple, like n- not even simple, but just one straight story that's going on with Carnival. And well, I feel yeah, like it, would, it wouldn't fit like, like having those like sort of moments of the week or whatever that HBO would want to was suggesting we would have that there'd be a shape to every episode. It'd be like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to do the freak finder episode. Yeah. And we're going to do the, we're going to do, there, there'd be episodes every, even on a serial, it's like a chapter in a book. It has a beginning, middle and an end. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So having gone through that and then you went into other fields in writing as well. You went into comics, correct? 
Yeah, I did Iron Man for about two years in collaboration with my son, Charlie. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. What was that like working with your son? Well, I was, uh, I've told this story before, but I was, uh, I'll tell it again because it's vaguely in the, you know, I, uh, Carnival, Carnival goes off the air. Marvel cuts. Do we want to finish it? We want to do a series of graphic novels. Those negotiations go nowhere with HBO. Um, mm. for, I have no idea why not. I mean, it was just ridiculous. HBO just, they, they just didn't understand comic books. That, that wasn't part of their thing. I, I mean, the first year I said, where, well, uh, okay, so what are we doing for Comic Con? And they said, Comic what? I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, again, this is 20 years ago. Yeah. Hard to imagine them even thinking that now. That's no, like, but yeah. back then, it was like, I mean, I, I was very active with my fans. I was very active on the, online and talking to people and answering their questions. And I remember having one of the other producers come up to me, what are you, 12? <laughs> so, Mm. I mean, this is kid stuff, the, these fan boards. That's not for grownups. It's certainly oh. not for us. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> so, yeah, we did. I uh, got approached by them. They wanted to do it. That, that didn't work out. They said, look, we'd like you to do a comic book. What do you want to do? I said, I'd like to do Iron Man, but one condition. I got to do it with my son. Because I, I, I knew that whenever you bring somebody who's not a comic book writer Mm-hmm. into the fold to do a comic book, they always come into it thinking, oh, I'm going to reinvent this. And they and, and they just make a mess of it. Yeah. It's like, okay, no, I mean, this, this is a fully formed thing. It's, it doesn't need any reinventing. It just needs to be adapted. And, yeah. And so I wanted to bring my son in, who was a huge comic book fan, to keep me honest. So he would go, no, Dad, that's lame. Don't We won't do that. Nice. And the other reason was because it gave me an opportunity to basically train him as a writer and knew he wanted to do write comic books. Yeah. And so uh, he would write the first, we would get together, we'd break a story. Then I'd go, okay. Then he'd write the first draft. He was the one who faced the blank page. And then we would sit side by side and I would let him, he'd watch me as I basically did my rewrite. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like, uh, it's a, a good learning opportunity for him. And it was like teaching a, a master class with one person in it. And it's my kid. So nice. that's kind of cool. And so that was, that was Iron Man. We did a, we did good, a really good chapter in, in our, a, a really good Captain America book. And then we did Eternals, but I really didn't do much on that one. We, both our names were on it, but Charlie carried the water on that one because I was busy on a show. Oh, nice. Um, so uh, a little bit of comic book writing, and lately I'm getting into publishing books. Oh, fab- fabulous. My first book my first book was a, is a screenwriting book that's different than any other screenwriting book. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's called Stupid Writer Tricks. You can get on Amazon. Nice. Yeah, and, I'll definitely buy that. Well, I, I get into, I get into how to do adaptations and how to do this and how to do that. But there's a lot of stories about how to handle a meeting, um, mm-hmm. how to, how to get an agent, how to, how to work with an agent, how to take notes and stuff that's not sort of not covered in a lot of those books. Nice. And, uh, and it comes from the perspective of somebody who's actually made a living at it versus somebody who's makes a living at writing screenwriting books. Yeah. So I, I, I like to think it's a little bit more, a little bit more informed, hopefully more helpful. 
Yeah. And then I just finished a, a Christmas story mm-hmm. that's sort of a, it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's a Christmas fantasy that is really pretty much for everybody, but it's disguised as a children's book. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of written, it's written in the sort of inspired by like uh, all the Ralph Dahl and me came out in it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, and it's, it, I just think the world is really due for an original Christmas story. I mean, it seemed like all down, we're down scraping the bottom of the barrel and it's either these treacly hallmark things right. or it's, it's, it's Santa's a psycho or his, his elf is a, is a pervert or some stuff. I don't know what. Right. Stu- super, super ironic stuff. Yeah. And I thought, no, I want to do something that's clearly from the heart that's like, a good Christmas story because there hasn't been anything like that from done since a Christmas story, which yeah. is like, you know, which is now so I, I thought it's, it's time. So I, I wrote it. I'm very proud of it. It's, it takes some deep dives and you don't know it and mm-hmm. it's, it sort of sticks with you. And so I've published that online on Substack. So if you go to sub, if you go Google Substack Gingerland, mm-hmm. The first 14 chapters are free. And uh, like every good, like every good drug dealer, I, I make oh, yeah. product available for free and then <laughs> charge dearly for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm doing that. And then I've got a number of, of other projects that are going to be published. I just, I have a, a I've, so I'm kind of moving in, in that direction. Wonderful. And I'll probably keep my hand in TV as much as possible because it certainly pays the bills. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so with everything that you've been doing now, like there's, you got to see your own show brought to life. You've worked on comics, working on other properties, worked on other shows. So this, with this incredible career that you, that you got going, what would you say to someone as say like the first step that they should take when it comes to wanting to like get their own ideas out there, getting it, getting, getting it made into some, some form of reality. Well, I mean, without, uh, yeah, without, without toting my own book, there's a lot of that in, in, in stupid writer tricks. What I would say, I, I was very fortunate in that I was, I was, uh, I, I was in my mid forties mm-hmm. when Ooh. I broke in. Yeah. And so I had a really deep story well of, my own experiences. Um, a lot of people graduate from college. They immediately get into a, like a writer's assistant job and work their way up through the ranks. And the problem is you just, you have no, you, what your, your source for storytelling is mostly other things you've seen on TV or movies. Yeah. You don't have a strong, deep sense, like original moments that you experience personal. You can kind of draw on. Mm-hmm. And, so my, my feeling would be if you're gonna, if you're gonna get into this business would be to live is, is make interesting friends and, and go to interesting places and get a lousy job and, 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 and work that for a while and understand, understand that, that you get a little bit of experience under your belt in the real mm-hmm. world before you, but in the meantime, keep a pencil sharp and write about it at night. Yeah. Take your time. Don't worry about getting monetized. Mm-hmm. Anybody can make a film now. It's, it's like, 
When I was a kid, we wanted to make film. We had to buy Super 8 cameras and Super right. 8 film. And you had to, you had to physically cut the film and mm-hmm. tape it together. And yep. I mean, now it's like uh, you have a studio in your pocket. You yeah. Know, basically, yeah. Like yeah. you can, you can, you can shoot do and edit a, a full, sh- a full film. Yeah, you can a do a broad, broadcast film. quality film with apps on your yep. iPhone. And, yeah. and so it's those tools have never been more available than they are. Um, mm-hmm. Write some stories down, write a story that takes place in a, a location you have access to mm-hmm. um, and utilizes elements that you have in your, in your, in your garage and or in your uncle's Civil War sword collection or local theater costumes, whatever it is. Just yeah. have elements you, have co- you can use. And, I mean, God, you want to do a World War II film, go down to the Army Surplus Store, buy some shit. <laughs> but yeah. just, or if you want to do just a friends type thing, um, mm-hmm. or just a super short thing, yeah. but shoot it, shoot it, edit it, score it, do all the things that need to be done, make it as good as it can be, put it up on YouTube. So what if nine people watch it? It doesn't matter. It's yeah. exper- it, this is about you becoming experienced. It's about you learning mm-hmm. your craft. And that's what I spent. I spent my, the first, the first 15 years of my career doing that and just saying, I just want to get as good at this as I can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And so get as good at it as you could possibly be. Keep posting that stuff. And sooner or later, somebody's going to sit up and pay attention. And that would be my advice at this point. Don't, don't, don't go broke over it. Get mm-hmm. a, have a day job. If you've got some inherited wealth, good for you. But, but just just go out and do it. There's no excuse to not just go out and do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and you can be found at Nof.tv, Is that correct? My main site is Nof.tv. I'm also on Facebook, and and that's a creaky old platform. Um, yeah. And what else? And and my Substack, the Gingerland Substack is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the book's on Amazon. So you can look, just type in, search for stupid writer tricks and look for the monkey. It's a, <laughs> some, a monkey sitting in an underwood. That's great. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Fantastic. And all of those notes are going to be, all of those links are going to be in my show notes. So that way everyone can go ahead and just easily access them. I am, I am so, I'm so ecstatic over having had this conversation with Dan. I hope that it was just as inspiring for all of you as it was for me. And just like he said, right within, right within your means in term, in terms of how you can get something made, don't go broke over it, but at the same time, like build that experience so that when the time comes, you have a whole lot of, a whole lot that you can present to those, to those that are willing to give that opportunity. But until those moments come around, make your own opportunities, get them out there because the world is waiting for your stories. So for Daniel Knopf, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. 
please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.